This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 325, Cold Fusion. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I, I'm doing well. I feel like a space cadet, and I'm going to blame all the winter weather for freezing my brain cells. You totally should. I. It's awful. Just awful <laughs> cold. I think everyone's experienced it. Like, it's like storms in the east, and yeah. it's just been a real cold snap here on the west coast. We've gotten down to minus 12 Celsius which, you know, for the people in the middle of Canada, they just laugh at me. But minus 12 is cold. It's it. it, 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 it I, I admit I slid backwards out of my driveway rather than rolling out of my driveway this morning. Yeah. When you get this kind of what warms up during the day and then it gets really cold at night and then you just get this black ice that forms and it's a yeah, it's a disaster. Yeah. So I just want to thank everyone for uh, giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. It, we really appreciate it. We got a ton of great reviews. Uh, and in fact, we sort of ended up on the what's hot lists for the U.S. and for U.K. And, Which uh, and was, that was great. awesome. Yeah, so great. So There was screen so, capturing. So thanks again. And uh, and then also I just want to remind you that you can, of course, you can subscribe to us on 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 iTunes or just using our podcast RSS feed, but also you can subscribe to us through YouTube. And so if you're on the Astrosphere Vids channel, make sure you subscribe on YouTube and then you will get notifications. All of these shows and all the other shows that we do through CosmoQuest and Astrosphere and Universe Today and it's it's good stuff. So uh, and now I know a lot of people also were wondering where do they find the Weekly Space Hangout, the audio only feed of it. You can get that through the 365 Days of Astronomy feed. So if you subscribe to that, then you'll get the uh, that every week as well. All right, let's get rolling. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by 8th Light, Inc. 8th Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. 8th Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So the universe is filled with hot fusion in the cores of stars, and scientists have even been able to replicate the stellar process in expensive experiments. But wouldn't it be amazing if you could produce energy from fusion without all that equipment and high temperatures and pressures? Pons and Fleischmann announced exactly that back in 1989, but things didn't quite turn out as planned. So before we kind of get into what cold fusion is, let's get let's talk about what hot fusion is. So what's going on in the process of hot fusion? Well, with, with hot fusion, we have uh, very hot, dense places like, well, the center of the sun. And in these hot, dense places, uh, atoms are getting crushed together such that you end up with two hydrogen atoms combining to form helium. You'll end up with carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen getting produced. And this is because at those high temperatures, things are moving really, really fast. And at these high densities, 
it's impossible for these things not to get so close together that they overcome the the normal repulsive forces that cause protons not to collide. And when you get those protons close enough together, the strong force is able to take over and glue them with gluons into new atoms. But the great part is that energy pours out yes. of this process. Wouldn't that be amazing? So, so scientists have attempted to replicate this process with experiments here on Earth. And, and that's actually going really well. I mean, it's always 30 years off, right? But, but so where are we at the state of, of hot fusion here? you know, experiments. So, so with hot fusion, there, there's laboratory reactions. There always have been. You pour in more energy than you get out, but you can study how fusion happens. You can study what are the byproducts, uh, what ratios do you get things. You can confirm all the math works. There's some really neat plans where they're trying to use lasers to compress small glass beads that have stuff in them. Exactly what the stuff is depends on the experiment. And they're trying to zot these small glass beads from pretty much all sides at once with multiple high energy lasers. And the idea is that if you pulse the laser at the glass bead, you'll get fusion inside the glass bead, release huge amounts of energy. And maybe this is the pathway for hot fusion as an energy source on Earth. So far, it's not working. Lots of people think it's never going to work. But hey, it's giant lasers. So the DOD keeps paying for it. Right. But I mean, the holy grail, of course, is just that the the net energy is positive, that you may have to pump in mountains and mountains of energy through these lasers to heat up these glass beads. But but by doing that fusion process, you will unlock this process that happens in the sun and and energy will pour out. And, 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 and more importantly, though, it's clean energy. Yes. When we have normal nuclear power reactors that that are burning whatever particular thing they're burning they're giving off all sorts of really nasty radioactive byproducts that end up if in some cases spilling in other cases just piling up because we don't know where to put it and these nuclear byproducts are are hot are giving off deadly radiation for upwards of hundreds of thousands of years with fusion it's it's like hydrogen giving off helium we're kind of good with helium we need need it we're running out of it yeah let's you know fill some balloons with it so okay so then let's talk about cold fusion so you know i guess in theory right this is great you don't need you know some other process that crushes atoms together and produces (laughs) byproducts that doesn't require gigantic lasers and enormous facilities and right well you still have to crush them together the trick's finding a way to crush those hydrogen atoms together without needing, well, star-like temperatures. And, uh, well, it's the star-like temperatures take vast amounts of energy to create, but you do have to have some way to crush the atoms. So tell me a story, Pamela. <laughs> tell me a story about cold fusion. So there's this metal called palladium. And uh, being a bit dyslexic, my, my brain sees this word and wants to turn it into paladin every time I see it, which the idea of like this shining hero coming to rescue us with with cold energy just somehow. Anyways, that's where my psychosis goes in the morning. It's, it's totally lawful good. I totally I totally agree with you. <laughs> so you have this you have this metal uh, palladium and it was recognized that palladium will 
happily let hydrogen into its matrix. You have this metal and hydrogen can get in. Okay, that's kind of boring. So what? But this got people to thinking, if, if I have a chunk of palladium, what if I could cram the hydrogen into the palladium so densely that within the palladium metals, I could get fusion going on? And this idea has been kicking around pretty much since the 70s. There was a patent placed on the idea. And so what happened was eventually, Pons and Fleischmann, they took a calorimeter. This is something that most of us had to build at some point in high school biology class or chemistry class. And uh, you can use a calorimeter to measure how much energy is coming out of something by measuring the energy very, very precisely. Temperature is another way of looking at energy. And so they took this very well-insulated, very precise measuring calorimeter and filled it with heavy water. This is water that instead of having normal plain Jane hydrogen with no neutrons, instead has deuterium. And they thought that if you had an electrolyte and deuterium in the the doer and you then ran electricity through this fluid. So you have on the wall of the calorimeter what's called an anode. This is a positively charged surface. Then you have into the center of the calorimeter a cathode. This is a negatively charged surface that you could get the hydrogen off of the water, in this case deuterium off of the water, and deuterium fuses at a lower energy than normal hydrogen. This is why they were using the heavy water. So if you have the heavy water, the palladium will happily, on the negatively charged cathode, suck in the hydrogen, electromagnetic force, tears the, the molecules apart, the oxygen goes to the anode, the hydrogen goes into the cathode, cramming together in the cathode. And the thought was that if you do this over a long period of time, just keep flowing the electricity through the system, You'd build up the hydrogen until fusion took place. And the claims that have been made by more than one uh, not at a top-ranked research center scientist, so these claims have been made multiple times, but the experiment has never proven out at any of the big-name top research centers that have tried it. The claim has been made that if you flow the electricity through the system long enough, you'll have this nice standard 30 degrees Celsius experiment going and going and going and all of a sudden zap. It jumps up to 50 degrees Celsius and off and on, off and on, the temperature fluctuates until it appears that the fusion reaction has ended. And that's when all the deuterium in theory is used up. So this this is the claim that has been made. Right. And so, you know, were you around when, I mean, do you recall when Pons and Fleischmann made their announcement? And- I, I remember seeing it on the news right before I was supposed to go get the bus to go to school. I, I was a kid. Yeah. But I, oh, but I remember I I was- this occurring because it was like, it was on the Today Show. It it was it was all over. This was the the key to to clean energy. And, and so this was 
uh, kid. I was ninth grade when this happened. And this was, I want to say this was well before uh, the movie The Saint came out, which was kind of based on this idea, the idea of cold fusion, except uh, the woman they had playing the part of the scientist was much sexier. Right. Well, and the thing is, it's like, so Pons and Fleischer, I mean, they they kind of went about it wrong, right? Which is that the way they they announced this to the world was not in the way scientists traditionally run through, run out their experiments, especially something so dramatic as this. They like held a big press conference yeah, and announced it, which was not, not the right way to go well, about it. And, and there was another problem to it. There was another group that had been working at another uh, research facility in Utah and they had similar research. The two groups had been talking to each other. They were going to be submitting a pair of papers. There was an agreement that they were going to meet at an airport, FedEx their papers to the journal Nature together. And unfortunately, the University of Utah, according to some reports, uh, pressured Pons and Fleischmann. And so this is university politics playing a role pressured Pons and Fleischmann into not doing the upright thing and submitting the paper for joint publication along with this other research team. And so they just went to the press. And Pons and Fleischmann, I mean, they were some of the world's leading electrochemists. I mean, they are yeah. not pseudoscientists. No. And, and, and so I'm sure it for them, it really was a difficult decision to go that way. Yeah, they're they're at a PhD granting university, the University of Utah. It's not a university to be shrugged at. It's it's a these are solid scientists doing solid work, planning to put it through peer review, planning to do everything right. But this is the type of thing where other teams have had patents for similar relate for similar work where if what they had done had proved right, the University of Utah, if they were able to patent the process, would have made billions and billions of dollars. Trillions. I mean, all free energy. Like, it's insane. Well, right? it's not free. Well, <laughs> net positive energy. Cheap I mean, energy. sure. Cheap energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have made, pollution as you said, billions or trillions. Energy. Free energy. Free. Well, well, oh, we'll get on to free energy in a bit here. I didn't but. say free. I said pollution free. Pollution free. No, no, but we're going to get to free energy. I want to talk about free energy too. But, <laughs> but, uh, um, right. So, and so then they made their announcement, right? Yeah. And, and everyone jumped on it. It, it was an amazing story. And pretty much overnight, major research institutions all over the world started trying to replicate what they'd heard based on the scant information that had been published. And that's that's another one of the, the problems is when you're publishing something like this, you want to, to lay it all out. You have the detailed schematics, you explain the energy in, you explain the energy out, you explain what equipment you used, how you measured this, what the what the errors are, what the errors are here, how you verified this, how you verified that. You want all the checks yeah. and balances in so that you know what issues there might be. And and there's actually been a whole bunch of top done papers on this that have over and over had to be retracted because Upon further review, it was realized, oh, there was something wrong with my temperature gauge. Oh, there was a short in my wiring. Oh, all these little things that were able to be discovered later. 
Pons and Fleischmann didn't have that. Yeah, and and in many cases, so had they, I mean, they hadn't gone through the traditional peer review process, right? They hadn't given this to a bunch of people, asked them to replicate the experiment or find the problems. And even a lot of the cases, you know, as scientists, it's very, like, here's the thing we found. It's probably not true, but please poke some holes in it or see if this helps you out. But the university would just run with it and the press went bonkers with it. Well, it it did get submitted for for peer review. It went to the Journal of Electroanalytical Chemistry. Um, It's not Nature, but then again, Nature is a journal where lots of papers have to get retracted because it turns out the research was just premature. Um, So it, it did go through peer review. And they tried. They tried to be legitimate scientists. Um, they tried to do everything right. Somewhere there's a mistake, and I don't think anyone will ever know what went wrong with their experiments. And there is an error that led their university, because there's always some press officer going, hey, you got something, hey, you got something, and you have to let the press officers know at least 30 days in advance or they get upset. And there was university pressure. So you have scientists trying to do it right, trying to go through peer review, trying to put everything out there correctly, getting pushed to publication early, having to break their agreements with other scientists. We'll never know what went wrong other than people saw dollar signs. Yeah. And so what now do we think was going on? Um. This is actually what's called a pathological science. It's it's an area of science that the people engaged in the field refuse to give up, no matter how much evidence you give them that the the tree you are barking up does not contain squirrels. They 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 keep chasing after cold fusion using electrolysis. Various government agencies keep throwing small amounts of money at the problem. Uh, But so far, it's not working. There are related fields. uh, Electrolysis um, doesn't seem to be the way to get low temperature fusion, but other people have tried a process called bubble fusion, which is where you grow ever larger uh, bubbles in a fluid uh, Special chemicals get used, and when the bubbles burst uh, during a process called cavitation, you can potentially, if you have correctly deuterated material that will, um, so this is a fluid that's enriched with deuterium, when when it collapses, uh, the deuterium gets smashed together, perhaps you'll get fusion. This is another route people are going. There was, again, a publication put out. This time it did show up in science, but no one's been able to replicate those results either. And so we're in, we're in a position where you have people who think they've replicated the work. They think they proved it right. They think they did it. No. So we're trying. But it's not the kind of, I mean, it's not the kind of research that has gone away completely. I mean, in the time, I mean, when, when I started Universe Today, it was still, whatever, 10 years after the announcement from Pons and Fleischmann. We've been doing it for 15 years. And occasionally interesting press releases come out and say that they're 
that it, it won't but completely all die. because a press officer can write a good press release does Maybe. not mean the science is good. People still look for the Holy Grail. We call mm-hmm. them crazy. <laughs> right. Well, there are still hundreds. I mean, there are still hundreds of people working in this area. So it's not completely, completely, I guess, not everyone has just decided that's it. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to work on it anymore. I, I don't think it's hundreds of people. I think it's hundreds of thousands of dollars get spent on this every year. This this is low budget research that's not getting that supported, that doesn't have mainline research papers that often there's every few years conferences on it to see, okay, is this something we should continue doing? And it's it's just not proving tractable to at room temperatures, compress deuterium atoms that close together. Um, we're we're just not finding a physical mechanism to do it. Yeah, and at this point, the funding, as you said, it's now hundreds of thousands. The funding is really drying up. Yeah. There are some recommendations. I know that like the Department of Energy or Department yeah. of Defense has been looking for money, but it's all starting to peter out. Yeah. And, and this one is mostly funded through the Department of Energy. DOD likes the um, big laser fusion projects. Uh, they like lasers. It's, it's kind of painful to watch in a way. The, the bubble cavitation, I think, is really interesting because there, there's lots of interesting physics going on. But it doesn't seem like a way to get continued reactions to take place. Yeah. The cold fusion with electrolysis just doesn't seem to be working. Yeah. And so I think at this point, unless something really interesting happens, it's just going to continue to sort of settle down and eventually just completely leave the the mainstream research. I think we're just waiting for that generation of scientists to die. Right. As, as always. Um, but then, I mean, I think what's what's important as well is the that as it it had all the trappings i think of a more of a pseudoscience type thing that we see a lot of even to this day that every now and then someone says they they're about to test some kind of free energy uh energy from water uh some kind of machine that's going to produce energy that's a net positive perpetual motion and i think there's a standard way that we need to approach all this stuff which is skeptically well <laughs> With cold fusion, it's it's one of those borderland sciences. There's no reason at the surface that you shouldn't be able to find a low temperature way to get the needed densities. The only question is how? And it turns out that the how uh, doesn't actually seem to possible with any of the technologies we've tried yeah so how should people approach this kind of stuff is there an underlying physics that can explain what's going on if you have to rewrite the rules of physics it's probably pseudoscience if there's underlying physics that says this technique is physically allowed we just don't know if it will mechanically work and that's what we're facing is it doesn't seem to mechanically work but it's physically allowed with these processes. 
if if the physics exists, then it becomes a, a question of, huh, can you do it? And it's the can you do it where we're failing. So do you think then that it's always going to be impossible? Or do you think that at some point, if people do keep cranking away at it, someone will come up with a, a way to approach it? I think that we've pretty much played out the using palladium and electrolysis. That That is not leading to anything. And we keep trying it. And no. Um, I am more um, willing to look at the bubble cavitation research. Um, the bubbles collapsing, I think that's something that we're still figuring out that was only started in 2002. But I'd want to see that research taking place if you're going to fund it within an environment where what you're trying to study actually is what's the physics of bubble cavitation. Uh, you're not funding the we're going to find low cost energy um, so that we can understand the physics of that better. What I think there's space for is to find new technologies, perhaps new ways to use magnetic fields, new ways uh, to cram things together that will lead to fusion at lower temperatures. There's an awful lot of time to figure out technologies that can squish atoms together. I give us time. Yeah, and you never know how this stuff's going to come back around and play out in ways that maybe we had no expectations. Right. So, yeah, and it's it's too bad that the whole now if you're hooking up some heavy water in an experiment and you're trying to crush it together and you're using palladium, then your funding all gets cut. When there's interest, as you said, there's interesting research to be done in the cavitation and about using a matrix, a metal matrix for for cramming hydrogen together. I mean, this kind of work should still get done. Well, I, I think we're kind of done figuring out the palladium. Um, yeah, but a new matrix, maybe. Yeah, it's... <laughs> the thing about asking for funding is you have to always present what's new about what I'm doing, what results do I think I'm going to see, what research am I building on, what are the physical rules that allow what I'm predicting to happen. People can put in to do innovative research and the peer review system should be good enough it's not always but it should be good enough to say this idea over here let's give them seed funding to try it okay the seed funding worked let's scale this up that's how funding should work and the people who have crazy ideas for infinite energy that breaks the rules of physics they're not going to get funded but when you have legitimate researchers who have the infrastructure of a large public institution like Pons and Fleischmann had, if they have a valid idea, trying that idea, we shouldn't be afraid to try new things. But we also need to stop funding things that we know aren't working. That's what and, peer review does. And I think the media... You know, as a member of the media, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, I try to encourage this is this skepticism, this that when when people make these kinds of claims, when it's presented in a way that's unusual to be extra skeptical. And that's when we as the media need to bring in a lot of those weasel words, you know. Yeah. And, and we need to say, these people are reporting, this might be happening, a lot of people are skeptical, here's what other people think, and to get, and to really approach this almost like we've been invited to the peer review and to say, hey, 
I know you say you think this stuff is true and and I you know I'm not an electrochemist so I can't necessarily decide whether or not what you're saying is real or not but I can at least know that every time someone has tried to make that kind of a presentation in the past here's how it often plays out and yeah you know and let's work together us as the people who are trying to publicize what you're doing yeah. to make sure that it that it's a lot smoother and and you know there are certain hoops it must be jumped through and and the question i think you have to ask of every website you go to every press release you read is where's the money trail and if you find that the press release that you're looking at is one that if it's successful has the potential for the university to get large contracts to continue this research for commercial firms be skeptical if it's bragging yeah. rights for intellectual merit i think that's kind of cool and so when it comes to science sometimes you have to be more skeptical the more likely money's at play and that's true of just about everything. Yeah, and I love the the first rule of uh, of questions in headlines. Have you ever heard this? No, I haven't. That if you ever see a question in a headline, like "Have astronomers discovered another Earth?" No. or whatever, the answer is always no. So if if the if the headline is a question, the answer is no. So you you know you don't need to read the article. So yeah, it works. Awesome. Well, thanks, Pamela. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info@astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+ every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.